Kenny, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you now. Fans are gonna want to know: Kelly Dylan or Brenda Dylan? I think this. maybe Kelly and um, Brandon belong together. Hey, Beverly Hills 90210 fans, are you ready to dive deep, episode by episode? Storyline by storyline, character by character, as we break down the making of your favorite zip code with your host, Charles Rose. Did I say that? Mary Mullins. thing about the, the, the real person, and we're going, what? We're getting rid of this guy. Pete Ferrero. And growing up, my, like, TV crush is Claire Arnold. So, I mean, she has to come on the show at this point. Fashion guru Perry She was, Sanitin. like, 25 or something. <laughs> She looks so old. Like so many special guests. And all your questions. Live on the Beverly Hills 90210 show. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, here we are back again uh, on the Beverly Hills 90210 show. And uh, Chuck is with us and Perry is with us. And Phil, we're going to talk about in a second. But before... Uh, we talk about all these things. Uh, Chuck, I don't know if you know, but today this happened. I got to meet Kathleen Robertson. She was you, in town? She's in town, and she is working on Swimming with Sharks. She's going to be with us on November 11th, which is super exciting. And uh, Molly Campbell, by chance, has a necklace that uh, Kathleen has wanted for a very long time that says Claire. So she was DMing me, which is like, for me, the super fan, she's DMing me is crazy enough. Uh, and then she was, I said, I can get it for you. I'm going to call Molly and I'm going to see if Molly will get it for me. And I, I went to Molly's house. Molly's house is crazy and because there's so much good stuff there. Perry, you would love all the fashions and stuff. That would you love, know. yes. By the way, Perry, I know that you know more than just fashion, so you're going to be <laughs> popping in with insight other than just that kind of stuff as well. As yes, that. I do know a little more than <laughs> fashion. Thank you for that phrasing. Yeah, you know a lot about 90210, which is why I do, and about other things. Yeah, so that was very exciting, Chuck, meeting Kathleen. Uh, she says hello to everybody, and she's really excited to uh, to pop on when we when we do that episode. Now, this is a super exciting episode talking about Halloween. Uh, I'm curious to know as we hop into this, and Phil is an expert in this topic, what was Halloween like in Beverly Hills? Chuck, growing up. Well, I think it was, the, for me, and it was the first place that I saw that people would bust their kids in to get the better candy. And that's because that, when I, you know, in, when 1961, they weren't doing that. But by 65, 66, yeah, let's bust them in. Let's get the Hershey bars. And yeah. and um, most until what we're going to talk about with the egg fight, my most memorable Halloween was getting, because you, you did Halloween in the flatlands. You wouldn't go up to the hills because you're too strenuous for little kids. And so nobody trick-or-treated up in Truesdale Estates, where I lived. And about a mile from where I lived, um, there was this guy who lived in Truesdale named Richard Nixon. And he had just been defeated as governor of the state of California. And we rang his doorbell and the, uh, the Filipino uh, housekeeper came and gave us uh, candy. Wow. House. So that. My first memory of that, that those are my best Halloween memories until the one that we uh, we all became a little more mischievous and it was all about the egg, not the kind that uh, and, and Steve were about, but the, the, a certain kind of Beverly Hills egg, the Halloween egg, the, the, the trick yeah. as opposed to the treat. Yes. Phil, you're an expert on this topic. You have a great video that you shared with us. Uh, I'm going to play that in a second. But why don't you talk about your experiences of Halloween in Beverly Hills? Well, Halloween in Beverly Hills was special because there were movie stars that lived on every block. So, for example, if you went trick-or-treating on Roxbury Drive, well, Jimmy Stewart lived right across the street from Lucille Ball, who lived next door to Jack Benny. And up the street were the Gershwins and, and Agnes Moorhead and Jack Palance. And they basically were all on the same block. 
And I show a little bit of that in the in the movie that I, you know, we put together for the Beverly Hills Historical Society. And Chuck was nice enough to uh, tell us some of his stories. But yeah, uh, you would just ring the doorbell and there they would be your neighbors. Wow. Uh, so having grown up in Beverly Hills, of course, when I watch 90210, there are all the stratas of society, the rich kid and the kid sneaking into school and the rebel and the, and uh, the Halloween was the night where everybody got together. There was, it was all blended together and everyone wore masks and they were really quite wild times. <laughs> One quick thing, yes, they would bring people in by bus, kids, because they figured the movie stars would give away better candy. Uh, and sometimes they were very surprising. I remember we lived uh, across the street from an Academy Award winner named Broderick Crawford. And he wasn't exactly prepared for Halloween. But his, his show, which I think was, was Highway Patrol, was sponsored by Chesterfield Cigarettes. So you'd ring his doorbell, he'd give you cigarettes. No, wow. Uh, <laughs> Now, Danny um, Thomas was the prize because he gave away what they called the nickel Hershey bar. But I later found out from his daughter that when they would run out of candy at his house, he would go and he would raid all of his kids' bags to, and then give it to people at the door. And when he'd run out of that, he'd give them autographed pictures. So I guess the goal was to get there before he ran out of candy or you ended up with a picture. <laughs> <laughs> That's some awesome stuff. All right, I have a. Who are we talking about? Which actor were we talking about? I missed that part. Thomas and the Nickel Hershey bars. Ah, those days for a nickel, it was a big deal. There were yeah. a lot of in the show that uh, I just watched, which was I guess the second season Halloween show. Yes. So reminiscent of what it was like to grow up in Beverly Hills. You know, obviously. Some kid was going to throw, you know, the big party there, you know, because a lot of the parents were theatrical. A lot of the kids went to Western costume and would actually get movie costumes to wear that night. Right. So, the, so you had a Zorro and a mermaid. And but there really were, you know, somebody would come in tails and a top hat that, you know, dad had rented from MGM uh, in 1970. I don't know if Chuck went, but MGM actually sold off all the costumes. So for a few years, we were just completely outfitted with Civil War generals and band leaders. Mm. And I had a prison outfit. You too. Go ahead, Chuck. What you got? I uh, Yes, the, it, that was a treasure trove of costumes. And also, it was before, you know, the era where everybody was so... So, uh, with the you know being able to really uh, uh, with the when you when you check out of a, a store and they well, this is the price and this is what you are there were just tags on jackets so they it that was worth seventy five they said and next to it was a tag was worth a dollar and the dollar fifty tag went on the seventy five dollar tag and I got this very cool purple jacket that was worn in the Stephen Foster story that I used to wear to Grateful Dead concerts for the whole 70s uh, until I forgot where it was. <laughs> but that was my, uh, my Any, We had many Halloweens from the old MGM auction. Yes. Hey, Phil, where can people find out more information about what you're working on about Beverly Hills? I know Chuck and I really want to dive deep with you and really explore this. I think the fans want to hear about uh, the, the episode, and we're going to bring some people on to do that. So where can people find out about, the, about what you're doing uh, with the Beverly Hills uh, Historic Society? Well, we put up a website called the Beverly Hills Historical Society because we figured if we didn't tell our stories, nobody would believe it. You know, yeah. So we got about twenty films and stills and stories, and we have actually guided tours, walking tours through where the old movie stars used to live. And uh, there's a book on the history of Beverly Hills uh, that you can go through. So basically, we just wanted to have a place that people who love the old legendary stories would go and be able to access them, because as I said, we were there in such a magical time. It doesn't exist anymore if we need to tell our stories and leave something behind about just this amazing place. Yeah. Um, 
For example, the Halloween in question with the egg fights became such a legendary story that it became the basis of a, of a feature-length movie mm. called Hollywood Nights. It was uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's first movie. I think uh, uh, Jay Leno was in it and Tony Danza. You know, it was a teen movie. Wow, yeah. But the plot was, it's Halloween night in Beverly Hills. The Beverly Hills Decency Society is banning the Hollywood Nights. And they have one more night of mayhem before their whatever happens when you're bad. Yeah. So came this legend that way, way out distanced the event. Mm. Chuck and I actually witnessed the event uh, that spurned the movie and the legend. That's uh, we were there. Yeah. Now, my recollection is, uh, uh, you know, we were about 15 minutes younger than the bad kids. And what they did is somebody's father had right. a vegetable truck with canvas on the sides. And it drove into the intersection of Alpine and Elevado. And suddenly they dropped the canvas from the sides. And like the gangsters in those, those, those movies, they just start throwing eggs at everybody. Wow. And of course, totally unprepared. And by the time the, the kids were armed, they had driven off. And then it was like... And those, yeah. And those guys called themselves the bums. And basically... The other kids there in court throwing them and firing them. And I was just talking to a friend of mine on who I con communicate with on Facebook these days. Mm. Hello, Tim Weston. And he uh, was at Beverly High. And he remembered once being in an egg fight on the corner and his losing his glasses in the egg fight. And after church the next day, his father, who was a pretty well-known uh, Hollywood conductor here for TV and film, uh, back to the intersection to see if it was there, and he found it in the bushes. So he didn't. It. He, he shared wow. that story with me today when I was uh, when he talked about on Facebook when we were talking about the Halloween episode because it was the infamous corner. And by the way, the next year, some of us went back kind of the same way Scott and David did to go back to the scene of the crime. There Correct. were no kids on the corner. There were four police cars instead. Yeah. And, the and that, I, think, I think that might be the end of Beverly Hills, Phil, right there, that moment. The, now, the, the cars on the four things, that was, that was the turn. Let's shift the show here, Chuck. I would, I, Phil, thank you for joining us and sharing some stories. I'm going to bring the other panel on to talk about the episode. Uh, Chuck and I definitely have plans to do a lot more with you, so uh, thank you for joining us. Okay, we're going to say goodbye to Phil. We are going to bring on some others. How about this person? Right, Christina Lee, who was in uh, this episode. Here's uh, Jill Hankel, who was the sec decorator back in those days. And then, of course, hi, Jill. Uh, hi. Yeah, we could not do this episode. Uh, Great to see you. Hang on one second, guys. I have frozen. We could not have done this episode without this person, and that is Anthony. Stark, who was our cowboy uh, back in this episode all those years ago. So this should be really fun to talk about. Hey, Chuck, I want to start with you. How important was holiday episode? Hello, Anthony. Hello. To... Chuck, how important was holiday episodes Hello? to the spellings? Well, this was a really an interesting, it's really an interesting question. Um, and it was one of the reasons, by the way, that we had to make the case that we had to go to our senior year. Because mm -hmm. if you if you think about it, if you really look at the first season, we didn't do any holiday anythings. We just kept going. You know, we kept doing it. It was not what time of year. We made the reference there was spring dance, yes. But it really could have been any time. And uh, this became very specific. And then Christmas became specific. And and. Valentine's Day came specific and uh, because it really meant a lot to Fox to promote. They they would have, you know, and you'd see the networks do this kind of in desperate uh, measures in the 90s to get viewers. It would be every show would do a Halloween episode. You know, every show would do the Christmas one. They go from the next to the next. Well, Fox didn't really have that so much and they really didn't have a lot of shows that could do, you know, the kind of 
holiday episodes we could do. And so there we were assigned. And uh, Halloween episodes were tough to do. This one particularly, look how much night shooting we had. A lot. Um, yeah. yeah. And you try to avoid that with, uh, or at least our producer, Paul Wagner, tried really hard to avoid that. And he really, I, I, my whole reaction to this whole episode is tainted by the fact of how unhappy he was for the six, seven days that we made it um, for all sorts of reasons, some of which I'll share and other. Uh, but, you know, Phil, I was thinking with you, um, you know, relative, I know that we did a Halloween episode in season five because that was Ray Pruitt and it gets smashed and all the stuff that went on there. But I remember in season five, given when we were doing it, it was hard to get pumpkins. Did you have problems getting pumpkins because we filmed it before they were in the store? Was that an issue with uh, with you at For all Jill. or not really? For Jill. Yeah. Yes, it was. We had trouble because we were so many months ahead of the schedule. So we've had to have them specially shipped in from other places. Same wow. with Christmas trees. <laughs> Jill, you sent us this cool photo. This seems to be the that set. Yeah, the house in, Hall in Hancock Park that we decorated for the party. And Paul Wagner also hated being on location. And we were on location more nights than he wanted to be on, I'm sure. I think like, I, I was counting. It must have been, we must have had five nights out. And our our padded budget was was four in and three out, and we never and we usually were five yeah. in and two out, five yeah. in and two out, and so that was an extra two nights. But the funny thing, I mean, I don't remember that much about decorating it, but having watched it again, I just remember. I mean, we were the first ones with no means no. We're gonna get into that. Yeah, absolutely. That that definitely came up a lot on this with the fans. Um, Chuck, I'm curious about the writing aspect of this episode. There is some of that stuff. Obviously, Jill just brought that up. We can talk about the no means no thing. And Anthony, obviously, is a big part of that storyline. Um, Kelly comes to the party dressed like this, you know. Um, and you guys do some great jobs of kind of like layering this in of what was going to, to happen to with her. Uh, talk to me a little bit about this idea for this particular part of the story. Well, for me, when I watched it, it seemed to me showed you the 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 era, the difference in the era, because I don't think today necessarily in, in a party like this, a, 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 you know, a girl, first of all, you know, you, the, the part of it was also if you dress like that, you're only asking for it. That was the kind of the, the the mantra of the time. It was all the women's responsibility to uh, make it that uh, guys uh, like Jeff Tobin can keep their pants on. Um, so um, the so you know you you have that and and but also I said that Kelly going to the uh, party itself and saying, I'm here to dress as sexy as possible so I can flirt with guys and it's just going to end it flirting with cute guys is also something that, and I asked, you know, Perry, Christine and Jill a more of a perspective on that. I don't think young women uh, were going to a party in that way for that particular reason in a big city like we are right now. What do you think about that, Perry? Yeah, no, no. I mean, I think... I think, like you said, it's a totally different era. And what struck me watching the episode again, this was one that I actually hadn't seen in a long time. And I mean, like you look at girls on Snapchat and TikTok that are a lot younger and they're wearing so much less and you don't even think twice. It's just sort of like, it's just how people dress. So it was interesting that, I mean, yeah, her outfit was, I guess, by all intents and purposes, a little bit skimpy. But compared to now, what kids are wearing, it was like downright demure, in my opinion. Like I Donna's actually actually showed more of her. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. That it was seems that I mean, yeah, she was really exposed. Totally. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was one. Yeah, Donna's out, Perry. Since we're talking clothes, you know, we tried to ape. 
We went back to the well and said, well, it worked in spring dance with her having in a silly thing and sitting down. Let's do it with the mermaid costume. And it was pretty ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, the skirt, but the mermaid costume, there was what she's supposed to do. Sit there like a mermaid. You know, it was, yeah. I think it was the worst Halloween costume you could possibly pick out. So maybe that was the joke. Hey, Christine, what is your take on what Perry was talking about there with the outfit, uh, Kelly's outfit? I also observed that Donna's outfit was far more skimpy. Mm-hmm. And nobody batted an eyelash at her outfit. Like, Brent didn't call her aside and, you know, call her a slut. Yeah. So that was just inconsistent, I thought. Um, but, yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm an old lady. And the, the length of the – like, shorts right now, little girls wear shorts. Where, like, their little butt cheek is – out of the bottom of the shorts. And that's just like all little girls, like, like from like little, little ones to like girls in high school and stuff. Not so little. <laughs> no, and I'm like, I can see your ass. It's shocking to me. And I'm so glad I'm not a father of a daughter. I, I, I walk around like a prude and I'm not a prude, but I'm so horrified at how, how much skin little girls show nowadays um, for all yeah. kinds of society reasons but yeah connie says that the mermaid costume is iconic i definitely agree with that (laughs) anthony i'm curious for you how you got brought into this uh you know obviously you auditioned for the part of the cowboy what is your recollection of uh coming on to the show of 90210 uh first of all can you hear me yeah we can hear you okay okay um uh, my outstanding recollection i have of the show i mean it was fairly early on they they weren't the show was about to become this big thing it was sort of in the process of becoming a big deal and i was not too aware of the show because it was still fairly new and i was just sort of taking people as i found them and uh i was just very struck by the fact that everyone on the show was very very nice i mean jason Priestley went out of his way to kind of um you know uh talked i saw him talking to uh 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 you know an ad or somebody in the distance and kind of saying who's that and coming over and introducing himself and welcoming me to the show and uh uh luke and ian were very nice also and i kind of later became friends with luke uh because both of our sons went to the same preschool so i i would see luke at, with, with little like little kid pool parties and stuff like that and um it was just uh, it was just fun and working um, at that location, that estate that we were at uh, was uh, was a Greystone or something like that um, uh, in Beverly Hills uh, was a phenomenal location and the scene itself the big no it was in like, Hancock sort of Park old, right Joe Hancock Park it wasn't Greystone no it was in Beverly Hills yeah was, we were at Hancock was, Park was, Anthony like, on that one. It was, it was a house in Hancock Park that I think still is there. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. It was. It was this massive, uh, massive mansion, and um, and then the scene itself that uh, you know where, where there, there was this near rape. I remember that being kind of um, uh, unexpectedly kind of harrowing for me, also because um, I'm not that methody of an actor, you know, and I've played a lot of bad guys before. So I wasn't expecting it to affect me much, but as when we, and we kind of carefully marked out the scene because I did have a funny feeling. I wasn't going to want to do this too many times. And I think Jenny did also, and uh-huh. she was great to work with. Uh, and we kind of care with Michael Cattleman, we, the director, we kind of carefully kind of blocked it out so we could just kind of really go for it uh, a couple of times. And she was, she was, you know, very committed emotionally and all this kind of stuff and crying and all this sort of thing. And I was unexpectedly affected by the whole thing, playing um, this, this, this person um, with these kind of uh, predilections. And uh, it was weird because after the first time he yelled cut, I remember feeling like nauseous. Mm. I felt like sick to my stomach from the whole thing. And it really kind of hit me. It was kind of an epiphany, just how messed up. Uh, the mind of a rapist is that they would a- actually derive some kind of satisfaction from that. So that was, that was an outstanding memory from the whole thing is that it really showed me at a visceral level, how um, sick these people are. 
Yeah. I'm going to play that clip. I'm going to show you that scene. Here, let's take a look at that. You're forgiven. Let's just go back to the party, okay? Kiss and make up? I don't think so. I do. Wow, pretty pretty intense stuff uh, for all those years ago. Um, I didn't. I didn't see it for some reason. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, Just as well, you would have really been pissed off at yourself. <laughs> okay. Um, Ch Chuck, this is a pretty intense thing. I'm sure you looked back at it this week. What do you think about it? What do you think about it? Well, I think that it was. You know, uh, you've said this before, and you know, we on our on our uh, our, our fun. 30-year uh, special, the, some of the fans got to meet Lindsay, my daughter, the writer on uh, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. And she, um, I wrote these things for her and her generation, that, that I knew these things were going on, and I wanted it to be, Fox was a little boy's network, but 90210 was never going to be a little boy's show. Although in this particular episode, we do have a little boy's subplot, which, which we'll get to, I'm sure, with eggs, go back to that. But, you know, everything is kind of submerged with this. And, you know, it was the first of, you know, Jenny's trials and tribulations with. Uh, no, that's not true. Perfect mom was. But this would be, you know, right right there in, in that mode. Um, Christine, you saw Jenny's work here and everybody's sort of talking about it on the board here about uh, how great Jenny was in this episode. Um, what do you think about her performance in this in this particular scene? I believed her. I mean, I believed every bit of it. I believed, I think I felt her being torn that she had sort of, I could feel it even when it was building in a direction she knew she didn't want it to go, that she had sort of gotten herself there, you know, almost, you know, unintentionally, intentionally, you know? Um, and I thought she did a great job. I mean, she did a really great job. It wasn't histrionic. It was, I liked, I liked the writing had her be self recriminating after, even after it had happened, still be blaming herself. Which mm. I think great victims to to great degree and they should never um i like she did i think she was really solid and i think that the writing was also great in that it, it really hit home it hit the you said no you said no you said no like a lot it was like it was clear that no little girl could have watched that and not gotten the message when it was over that saying no matters it has meaning and once you said no if things keep going out of control it's not your fault yeah. No matter what you did to get to the point, no matter how you led it to the point where you said no, once you say no, and I personally argue that you can be in the middle of actually having intercourse and say no, and if it doesn't stop when you say no, if it continues when you said no, it's still right. Even if you engaged, penetration has already happened, I, I contend that it's still right if you said no. So I, I thought it was really responsible um, writing and really great acting. I thought every, I liked the, I liked both Donna and I mean Tori and Shannon's acting I think in the scene after it was very uh moving. I, I liked sort of girl power, the girl not mm. slot, which is another thing girls can do in that age range. Actually any age range is also women can blame the victim as much as anybody else. So I thought it was really mm -hmm. soft really actually really moved by it. Yeah, me too. Uh, Beverly, Beverly says, thank you, Chuck. These were important stories to be told, and it really was an important message. Zara, our good friend, says this was the best storyline uh, for Jenny. Jenny is great. Tragic storylines, always iconic. Uh, so some really nice stuff being said. I was just going to ask Anthony a question, but that will not happen. Perry, um, I'm curious for you watching this back and seeing this scene, uh, what you thought of it all these years later. I thought it was strong. I I feel like Jenny, I've always preferred watching Jenny's character tackle storylines that are a little bit more emotional. I know in later seasons, she became sort of like a little 
Bitchy, and I didn't think that suited her as well. I think that these emotional storylines, for example, the sleepover when she told that yeah. story about Ross Weber and and this type of stuff, I think it really suited Jenny, but also Kelly. I, I feel like it endeared me to the character. I felt like she really was a little bit of a role model yeah. as opposed to later seasons when her bitchiness kind of, I liked it sometimes, but it kind of showed through and I was kind of like, all right, like right. yeah. a bitch. But like I really appreciated when she tackled some of that heavier stuff and when she was a little bit younger, like in season one, two, and three, even four actually, with some of the John Sears stuff. I just thought she was more she's tech for me, the character is more endearing yeah. when she was given heavier material. I think she she carried it. She carried it really well. Yeah, well, that's how I knew really the way that that um, the bitchiness that was in the episodes that came in subsequent years was where I knew, oh man, this is a real split from the first five years. Right. Because we worked really hard not to have her be that because it was too easy for her to be that. Uh, and um, that's just my feeling. Uh, but, but I'm speaking out of my my ass here because I didn't do the years after. And, you know, there might have been a lot of pressure to have a uh, her portrayal shift. So, you know, what do I know? Right. But I do want to say one thing that I think fans are going to like because it's so different. It's off Jenny, but it has to do with Luke. Mm. Um, and it has to do with Hancock Park, you know, which Joe mentioned. Hancock Park is like an oasis in the middle of Beverly Hills. It's all these older houses from the it's stretching from like 1915 to like 1935, almost a perfect square, big lots and different things. An affluent part. It was a restricted part of town. It's the part of town they wouldn't sell a house to Nat King Cole. But it was, um, uh, you know, this area, and this is where we filmed there. We filmed on many other times, and the Chancellor's House was in Hancock Park. Many other episodes we did whenever we needed a big stately house. It was always Hancock Park because it's an easier place to film. Um, in a real Halloween, real life, IRL, um, Maxine Rosen, my other daughter, was about 11 years old, 10 years old, and... All her friends lived in Hancock Park, but we didn't. We lived in another part of town uh, on the Fairfax District. And she wanted to, oh, actually, by that point, we we're already living in, in, in Westwood, long way from Hancock Park. And Al Gore was the vice president of the United States, and he was in town. And when a dignitary comes to town, it, the whole city stops because the police make uh, you know, a uh, caravan so they can sure. come through and, and block off streets and things like that. And um, and that's what happened. I had to go through all these side streets to get her to Hancock Park. We're about 15 minutes late and I'm walking through Hancock Park trying to find her friends. I find her friends. I'm very happy. Now I'm going to turn and leave when a man in a bunny suit comes over to me and says, hi, Chuck. And I went and he goes, it's Luke. And there was Luke Perry in a bunny suit taking his kids around for uh, Halloween. He lived in Hancock Park during those years, I, I presume. And uh, and that was uh, the first time I had seen Luke uh, since we both had left the show. So it wow. was. Uh, so that's what I remember about Hancock Park in Halloween. Is that is that anecdote? Melinda Berg says Chuck is very. So there you go. That's I, well. My kids think that too, and that's more important, even Melinda. But I was yeah. able to confirm. So it must be true. Not as hip as Christine, because Christine is oh, Christine. Not. But she's she's a she's a legend. Um, Chuck, I'm curious. Um, the other thing, two guys to talk about in this is Luke. He gives a really awesome. Uh, well, Dylan does. You know, gives a great. Uh, comment about uh, he he weighs in on this conversation about uh, how guys should really handle uh, a situation like this and that they always can make this choice. Uh, Chuck, I'm curious for you, and I'm going to ask everybody here what you thought of that that speech that Dylan gives. That's been a very popular thing to talk about here in the, the room. Um, it, it, you know, there were other, looking at the episode, it was, you know, it, it, it had, it had, you know, weight to it, it had authenticity. I mean, when, when Dylan spoke, it seemed to be a way that guys should be speaking. I'm not real big on shoulds in life, but nonetheless, it, it was the right take on the subject. And, uh, it, and, and I'm glad it, uh, people like it. Yeah. Um, it's like one of those moments where, 
you know, we've done a lot of Luke stuff over the last couple of weeks uh, where, you know, the Dylan was the coolest or whatever, but he always has seemingly the right thing to, to say. And that's obviously the writers, but um, I think that comes out of Luke's being too. Uh, you know, I've heard a lot of great stories about Luke over the last couple of weeks. Christine, I'm curious your take on that particular part of the episode. I think it was really important to hear a boy chime in. I think that the girl, I think the audience, the male audience needed to hear a man's point of view on that. I think it was really important that it came from, not from Brandon, but came from Dylan. Dylan at this point is, we believe, sexually active with Brenda at this point, right? So like, we know he has sex. He's not some like virginal thing. And I think it was important to have a male, a, a male perspective, really important to have a male perspective in that, at that moment. Yeah, Chuck. I want to amplify what, what Christine just said is that, well, they've had sex you know, Dylan and, and Brenda. And one of the things that I think the audience understood who was watching our show, and maybe they didn't, but I, we like to believe that they did in the way that we did it, is that when Brenda and Dylan got back together, they were having sex. You just didn't see it. Right. And because right. the network wouldn't let us. In fact, we had scenes when they start making out and you'll notice sometimes if you ever see a shot that kind of goes down to their shoes and like that, that comes right out of the 1940s, 30s filmmaking when there was the Hayes Code and they wouldn't let you transgress. But I think, you know, looking back on it, particularly in the years, maybe 10 years after I left the show, I thought that one of the cool things about it was that we never drew attention to it, that um, it was. And, and it gets and that kind of gets confirmed when they go down to Mexico and, yeah. you know, they're, they're together and, you know, it's, it's just they're together and it's not even a big deal at that point, as it would be in season three with, with Kelly. Yeah. And says he was so honorable in that moment. That was a great speech. Who wrote it? It stands out and is relevant today. Who wrote it or who rewrote it? <laughs> um, the script was written by Jonathan Roberts. And, and I think that the other two plots were more Jonathan's metier. Uh, the, the plot with the eggs, which mm -hmm. is important because of nature of Scott. And then the, and then the, 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 the C story, the subplot that Christine and Brandon were in, which uh, I want to talk to Christine about at a, at a, at a certain point too. Um, and because we're together now and because we're talking about it, maybe now. So yeah, you right guys now. are the scene um, in that. Did, did, you know, this was a scene, but I mean, I'm talking about when, when Jay had to put the teeth in his mouth and do all that Dracula stuff, you know, that that's the best one, but some of them, you know, did he, it just doesn't seem like that was one that would float his boat. Am I am I right about that, Christine, that this wasn't a, you know, you guys weren't, the, you know, it wasn't you were there and you had the kids and it was um, executed the way it was executed. And I just wonder, what were you guys thinking? And also, I, I never ask you personal questions, but was this a time that you're starting to get together as a couple or had that not happened yet? Had not happened yet. OK. In fact, in fact, I, after the eggs were and Brandon and I drive by, and I call them like yeah. rich pussies or whatever. Not pussies, but rich, rich uh, not what I call them, rich, like something like, tantamount to a pussy. Um, I remember having a drink with Jason after we wrapped, and then you went out to shoot the stuff with a with a with Brian and um, Doug. But I had my first drink with him. I just as friends, so for sure we were not at all anything. Interesting. And I'm sure that I mean, Jason. Whatever, Jason's a goofball. Jason's, Jason's, uh, you know, he's got a healthy ego, but he's not ego entirely ego driven. I mean, he's like he's, he's a goofball, and he's yeah, a, sure. so I don't think he. I mean, he didn't confess to me that he wanted to kill himself over doing that. I think that at that point in the show, if he was mad about it, he would have told you. Yeah, probably. I wasn't the mad, just, you know, just the, you know, he, you, you guys do so much great emotional stuff and so much funny stuff, different things. This one didn't require it of you in a sense. You're playing with the kids, the kids. And notice too, the other thing I realized is how much we, seeing your subplot, how much we recycle. The kids are back at the house safe and, 
it, didn't we do that like in the, our fifth season with the kid that Brandon had to escort around uh, Something like University that. and then yeah. he ends up at the house? You know, it was always safe. Oh, back in the house, everything's fine. Christine, what did you think of this uh, of this story of the, of your storyline here in this particular episode? Yeah. Me. Mm-hmm. Okay, I haven't seen it since it aired, so um, I don't have a lot to do with it. It's sort of a not, not a heavy load for me in this yet right. show. Um, I see. I, I'm wildly uncomfortable. I can see. I can see my own discomfort on camera, but where no, maybe my mother could too. I look so uncomfortable for almost all of it. Except for when I'm getting emotional and I'm like grounded in like fear. Otherwise, I feel really uncomfortable. One of the worst lines I'm going to be mean right now. The worst, one of the worst lines I've ever had to have said to my face, and I had to not react was, "I'm pretty fond of your mask right now." Okay, we'll be so impressed with our mask if we go as Brandon and Emily to the party, and and they'll think our mask is so great. And he's like, "I'm pretty impressed with your mask now," and I like. Take that in. It's like a musical where somebody bursts the song and singing right into your face. How yeah. do you hold? How do you hold? You know, that's the, it's so interesting. You bring that up. They cut out the musical number. Too Paul Wagner said not too expensive. No, no singing can't happen. Never <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know about you and singing. Yeah, I know we're gonna make you do that again. Yeah, but uh, but so I mean, I was first of all just full blanket. I was delighted to be there every second I was on that on that show. So please, but often like a little overwhelmed and I can see my being overwhelmed when I watch myself now. Also at the end when he kisses me, I literally was doing this. I'm going, just stop it, just stop it. It's so gross. So uncomfortable to watch that stuff for me. It was uncomfortable to watch it then, but now even more so because Jason's like my brother and it's and it's like it's it seems so wrong. It's intense. I mean, that was a heavy, strong This was a weird thing. And, and, you know, I I lost track of the director after this one. And I know he did so many things in that. But it was obviously in the writing. But when you guys are making, you know, like that, just making out and slobbering there in the peach pit, it is really a public, a PDA that's, (laughs) you know. Uh, I go back now as the old guy and say, no, no, we can't have that that way. Could have just been one kiss, you know. I agree. So I'm in violent agreement with you, Christine, as Duke Vincent used to say. Stop it. Yeah. Nat should have threw him right out. Yeah. Brandon, out. Uh Perry, what do you think about all of this? What we're talking about? I love Emily and Brandon together, and I loved them in this episode. It was new, felt new, it was kind of beginnings. I've always I've always loved them as a couple. I thank you. It's not a popular uh Position. I know I, it's not, but I, I always, I, I always, and I always, I know in past episodes of this show too that I that I wasn't on that I've watched. I know, I think you guys, some people were like, "Oh, I don't think they would have ended up together." I like to think that they would have. Yes, maybe I think not said, Kelly yeah. and Brandon, but maybe Emily and Brandon would have ended up together. I thought that I thought they were a great couple. I thought there was a real chemistry, obviously for good reason. But I also just thought Emily was like the coolest. Totally. Like when I was young and watching it, just everything. She just was the goal of making the new girl like the cool girl. I think it really worked. I think it was a really nice antithesis to the core three, you know, Brenda, Donna, long hair, like pretty. They kind of dress the same. And then this person comes in with like bleached hair and dark roots. And I just remember watching it being like, that's cool. Yeah. The other girls were like goals, but I thought Emily was like truly cool. I thought she defined cool a little bit more than Donna yeah. and Brenda, who I just thought were like pretty, you know? Yeah, that's what was, that was the intention. Oh, yeah. Totally, and I think a little heavy handed with the motorcycle, but I think it was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> I can't write one and I can't play guitar or sing, so <laughs> had, had any of that talent, those those character traits may have remained in the show, but I couldn't do any of it. So yeah, I thought I thought that she was like the ultimate cool character, and I still do watching it back, and I love her look. Yeah, she was dynamic. So Brandon cooler. Oh, a hundred percent. Everything about Brandon got looser, cooler. I agree. His whole demeanor, his like sort of goody two-shoesness loosened a little bit. I mean, obviously some of it was chemically induced in that one episode, but generally his demeanor was like, the character's demeanor was 
a little bit less buttoned up, in my opinion. And I think that was because of the, the character of Emily. A funny uh, true life aside is that in real life, it's the opposite. I'm super straight laced and he's really cool. So <laughs> I'm the, like the, we should go to bed, it's getting late, kind of like, I'm the goody two shoes. And he's like, I want to race cars and uh, hang out with Charlie Sheen. So oh. <laughs> it's funny that I- The hardest things I had to do on, um, it, we, we earlier in the year, we did um, the gentle art of listening we talked about and to, um, to tell Jason that he can't do the skateboard down the hill because if you break your arm, Mr. Spelling and Duke Vincent will break both of my arms. And, um, <laughs> and you know, and, but you know, to tell him he can't, cause he was that guy, he was a risk taker, you know, in his whole life. And then, and then he, uh, he had somebody up there liked him. Mm-hmm. For sure. Hey, yeah, that's the fact. Uh, Anthony, I wanted to ask you, we were talking a little bit about uh, Jenny's performance before, and I wanted to follow up with you on that. Um, you mentioned that you thought she was fantastic to work with. When you look back on Jenny's performance in this uh, episode, what are your thoughts? Well, just that it was very emotionally raw and that, you know, you don't always get that on, um, I don't know, a more sort of youth oriented show of those days and stuff like that. I mean, this, this is 30 years ago. It's not like what they're doing on Euphoria or something like that. And she was, she was really um, committed to the moment, and I thought she was just excellent. And you said that, uh, you know, you, you had that a couple of great interactions with Ian, and um, I think he punches you, actually. Uh, what was, what's it like doing some of that stuff? Um. Oh, I've, I've done plenty of fight scenes and, and that was actually very kind of, I don't know, very simple stuff, you know, st- stunt wise. Um, but the, the guys were so uh, friendly. I wasn't worried that, you know, they were going to get so into what they were doing that I was going to actually get punched or anything. Um, but th- those three guys are just lovely guys, all of them, um, you know, and I've run into Ian over the years a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only one I think I never saw after the show was Jason, but he was a he was a lovely guy too. Let's talk about some of the costumes, Jill and Perry. Um, okay, we had let's see, we had Dylan and uh, Kelly. I'm sorry, Dylan and Brenda going as Bonnie and Clyde. Thoughts on Bonnie and Clyde Perry? Loved it, <laughs> loved it. I just thought they looked so cool. Let's see. I got an image. As there. Whether it was Bonnie and Clyde or not, like I just thought they both it, the costumes really suited them. And I yeah. know from the episode that the character of Dylan was, you know, hesitant to dress up, oh, Mr. Cool, but that that worked for him. And I thought that the character of Brenda looked just so amazing. I mean, I personally hate a beret. Like they're I mean, they're awful. I think that like, but Uh-oh. I just thought she looked so cool and like not well, she's, mimicking, like, you know, she's, mimicking, she's mimicking uh Faye Dunaway. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. So they Faye wore the, you know, that was the hat, you know. Oh, I know. What did you think of the of that costume, Jill? I, I thought their costumes are great. I thought it fit their couple, and I also thought Ian looked great as Zorro. I mean mm-hmm. for him too. No, I thought all the and Tori and this silly mermaid thing. I mean, everything was suiting everybody right. I just have to say, as a crew member working on a show like that, which could be fluff, to have something as important happen was always really great. I mean, the show really had more merit than just being a show about you know a bunch of teenagers in Beverly Hills. I like yeah. that they made statements. Well, coming from you, that's great because I know how many terrific shows you've worked on after 90210 so that you appreciate what you did way back in the day. It means a lot, Jill. That was one of the most fun experiences ever. And I think I mentioned to Peter, I mean, that second season after the Beach Club, I remember leaving one day and Ian and Luke and Jason were on the back of the prop truck and they were literally throngs of 12 and 14 year old girls screaming at them like the Beatles because I'm from the Beatles days. And I oh my God, this is really happening. And it was so much fun. And we all started out not thinking the show was going to go anywhere to have it blossom into, I sat on all 10 seasons and it was an amazing, wonderful experience. Paul Wagner having a lot to do with it, Chuck and everybody, but Paul kept it all going really well and kept people in line because you did have a lot of 
young people. And it was it was just a great, great experience. As I like to say, better him than me. Yeah. <laughs> Jill, um, I know we want to talk a lot more with you because you designed some Decorated. Decorated. I don't design. I yeah, decorated. 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 Tom was the decorator. But I do want to say this to Jill. I know I can hear the tone. So, Jill, so I have reached out different times to the Double Up community. And a few of them, Drew came on uh, once and Diana came on once, but only once. They didn't want to come back. So you got to speak it up there. You know, we, we wanted to really have a bunch of crew guys on with us on the 30th. This is the first Zoom kind of anything I have ever done <laughs> in my life. Well, welcome, welcome to 2020. Well, yeah, you know, I do this stuff. I don't like even seeing myself now. And I well, you look, you look, a, you look great. And B, you now have your second act because yeah. you're good at this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we really do want you to come back more. But before we go, Pete, I got to yep. just say one thing about um, uh, Doug Emerson in this one. Yes. You know, if you think about Doug's deal, he it, for this show, um, it was the opening episode where he's going to go to Oklahoma. The one where he comes back from Oklahoma, where he basically, um, you know, David Silver, you know, blows him off and says, yeah, maybe we'll see each other. But at Halloween is when they get back together. It's when they rekindle the friendship that as Halloween brings out the 12 year old boy and all boys. And um, and this is the one right before the gun show. I mean, it was done to set up that they that they were OK with each other again. And so that plot did figure into a it wasn't a serialized moment but it made the person who had seen them one after the next, um, you know, uh, be interested in it because uh, it was the next show. And then outright, I like danger. I like danger. Yes. So it's yes. up to be somebody who's could, ha what happens next could happen. Totally. It happened to me because I wouldn't do that, you know, but this kid is saying yeah. he likes trouble. So, Foreshadowing. Another really amazing, great show to deal with that issue. And on a lighter note, I mean, it's weird, but from then on, he was always referred to as Dead Scott <laughs> by everybody. You know, if you ever oh, had his right. room or anything. Oh, Dead Scott's room. I mean, <laughs> a distant cousin of Dread Scott, actually. Dead <laughs> Scott, Dread Scott, you know. You know what? I have a potential person for you that you haven't had on that you might want to have on. There was Beverly Hills 90210, the musical. It happened in Manhattan, and I, I, oh. I did it, hosted it in Chicago, too. Um, the people that wrote it, it, it was brilliant. It was, you would have been, everybody involved with 90210, I told everyone to go, nobody did. Um, Gabby tried to go, but it was a non-union play, and she's a union you know, president, so she couldn't go. Um, but they, Tobley and, um, and Bob, um, Mick Smith, um, are reverent fans. Oh, well, we definitely should have them. You come back for that one, please. please. I know I would stand offish to you because at that same time, there was another musical happening in Los Angeles and New York that I was partial to, went to went to the um, London, uh, not London, to the, the Fringe Festival in Scotland and had a national tour. And that was Cruel Intentions, the musical, written and directed by Lindsay Rosen. So oh, right. we, were, we were promoting that at that point. And what do you mean there's a 90210 musical? We're going to do that. And Lindsay's going to be doing these parody musicals for the rest of her life. Well, no. no <laughs> uh, but she did Cruel Intentions, the musical. And uh, Perry, you probably heard of that. We were in New York at the time, right? Because they had oh, a lot yeah. of... Yeah. yeah I, I, before Glamour, I used to actually work in theater in New York. So I was very clued into that. And those parodies, those like teen parody shows really had a, had a moment. There was oh, a lot they really did. And, yeah. and um, she had great, Eva Price was her producer and we had great, um, who ended up winning a Tony award for Oklahoma and is yeah. just a terrific uh, woman produced Broadway woman producer and was so supportive of us, of Lindsay and, and, uh, and those of us. And, um, so that's why I stiff the guys in Beverly Hills. So I'd like to get to know them much better on our show. Yeah. Awesome. 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 Ridiculous. All right. Well, 
Maybe we can mount it somehow, Peter. Definitely. Absolutely. Chuck, I'm curious. I saw Christine Pettit, and I asked you about this before uh, via email. Christine Pettit wrote on your, the real Christine Pettit, on your wall that uh, she had to get a lot of these uh, costumes cleared and because of licensing. What was that process like for Christine? Well, that was the process that more important than than screening my calls was was doing this aspect of her job, which was we would go together through they, they give every TV show uh, has this something like this. I don't know if, you know what it, if, if it's the same company, but there used to be a company called DeForest Research and they had they had a lock on the business. And what they would do would look at the script and they worked for the, um, the insurance company looking for things that would be in errors and omissions. So, you know, you don't want to be sued because you put a trademark or something on that you didn't have the right to do because someone's going to crawl out of the woodwork and probably sue a Hollywood production company. So this was the company that did that. And anything that they said, either clear it or change it. Christine was the one that had to call and see if they were how to clear it. And usually what that ultimately meant at a certain point was how much, you know, yeah, but, you know, but that's that was that was her, you know, one of the, 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 the aspects and every single episode we had to do that. Yeah, I want to show you this other clip here, Chuck. He was supposed to join us. He did not pop in, but I always loved this guy. and I know he's a good friend of yours. Okay, I found it. This is the one that you reserved. So did Lucy Obama actually wear this? No, come on. Lucy never wore this. This is what you call a Lucy-type outfit, okay? Just like this is a Ricky-type outfit. We got Lucy, Ricky, Fred, Ethel. We got Fred, Wilma. All right, Wilma. all right. So uh, Desi Arnaz never actually wore this either? No, Desi didn't wear this. But if you're interested, Gabe Kaplan wore this exactly. Whoever. Look, the problem is that we don't have any Fred and Ricky-type guys to go with the outfits. So is it okay if we just look around? Yeah, just look around. Suit yourself. <laughs> there's so many things there uh, suit yourself I, I loved that chuck uh that's a good friend of yours right charles is his name i think that's Probably. the inimitable charles fleischer who everybody might know is the voice of roger rabbit and uh i uh met him in uh 1988 when i was trying to sell i was i had an overall deal to disney and i was trying to sell uh, a pilot there uh, you took the cartoon characters and in the round the world of Donald Duck and made them real people. And the, and he was a detective. It was called D D duck detective. And um, the, uh, he always would lose out and get all the, all the fame and glory and girlfriend and everything would always go to uh, the Mickey Ma the mouse. Cause they were known, they were real people, but they were known as the mouse and the duck. And cause he was always his own worst enemy. His temper would get in the way, or he'd have to make a point and not see something, and and then Mickey would swoop, the the the, the mouse would swoop in, and uh, what can I say? Jeffrey Katzenberg loved this, and he wanted to put it on as a regular feature on the Disney Hour because they were still doing it at that point on NBC, and um, as as someone told me, almost laughing on the phone, uh, a real asshole executive who used to work at Disney. Um, Jeffrey Katzenberg has a boss and Michael Eisner did not because Jeffrey Katzenberg wanted to do it. Michael Eisner did not want to do it. I got and, you. And uh, that was like working for that studio then guys, mm. but uh, a little bit of Hollywood history for Christine and Jill. Yeah. And Perry. Um, and so, so I met him and I asked him to be the duck and he passed on it. And then our kids ended up going to the same school. And I actually, if he was here would remind him that we once were, featured on a, a, a dinner between 100 Jewish men and 100 black men. And we were both there that night at the same table. Very cool. Hey, uh, MT sent a question in, uh, and they, they wanted to know, was the costume shot that that they were in in this episode the actual one on Fairfax, or was it just uh, the exterior and then these are interior somewhere? Any knowledge? Jill might know that. I think it, I'm not sure it was a real costume place. I think it might have been Universal, actually, where they have costumes for the studios. I'm not even okay. sure, though. 
All right. You know, I think I think we, you know, it looks like just too much stuff for us. I mean, there was just too much there. I mean, we certainly didn't on our stage, so it had to be somewhere, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was a location. It was either yeah, it was a costume house, I think. But probably, you know, it had to be one near Hancock Park because everything else was in Hancock Park. I would think right over the hill, so it could have easily. I mean, that's where there too. Paramount yeah. costume, it's not looks like that. MT? I bet you it was. That's where it probably went. I'm sorry, MT. We don't know, but it, you know, we'll 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 work on figuring exact the exact location so you can go visit it one day and get your costume for Halloween, which is only a couple of weeks away. Um, Perry, do you have any questions for the panel here that you would like to throw by, or any comments uh, from this episode? Well, let's see. <laughs> Um, I mean, this isn't, this is more of a fashion question, but I, and actually it's more of a comment, but watching this episode and then later ones with Christine, I love how you were always wearing vests and it really lately has inspired me to like try out a vest. <laughs> like, especially when I was rewatching this episode, I'm like, I'm sort of into this like vest vibe. I don't think they've ever really had a comeback, but that was like your character's low key signature. <laughs> Uh, actually, uh, in the BH Center 2.0 reboot, the uh, costumer is sort of my spirit animal, and she has this great vest that she wears frequently. And uh, and I wore a vest actually in the reboot, even like I. I yeah, it's uh -huh. so funny. The continuity is spectacular. <laughs> I wore that vest in more than one outfit. So her vest, her personal vest. It wasn't even wore. It was her vest. <laughs> I'm really into it. Like I actually think I'm gonna. Are you, get red and rock are, you, are you gonna get the red one? Is that the one you're looking for? Or? I'm probably gonna probably do a black one, but yeah. hey, the red one is cool and worked no, well. no, no, fire. I mean, with denim cutoffs, I'm really I'm really feeling the best. There Don't put the red do like a, a valet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is great, guys. Okay, I think we covered everything uh for this episode. Chuck, what do you think? Did we did we nail this here? Yeah, we, we got Halloween done. Trick or treat, yeah. Although you didn't, I, I sent you a picture. Uh, the one oh, did you got my. This yeah, is this was what this is what I think of Halloween, and this episode. This is the Halloween of nineteen ninety two. The same time. Oh, That's me that. with the bunny ears. We lived in Cart right near the fair. We live about um five blocks from the spelling offices at the Miracle Mile, and that's my son Avery. Who now uh, is uh, getting married in December? Uh, he's supposed to be married in May, but thank you, COVID, for fucking that up. <laughs> so we're doing that in uh, December, and it should be really nice. It should be nice, a nice guy. All right. I wrote a future Halloween episode. So when you get to that, Gypsies, Cramps, and Thieves, like season whatever that was. Six. That's another good one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wrote that one. So. One of my favorite episodes, actually. So uh, definitely, we'd love to have you back on to cover that one. Uh, before we leave, we have a new shirt. I'm going to show everybody this new shirt. Greetings from Beverly Hills, home of the Beverly Hills Beach Club. That will be up later today. You can grab that. I like that one. I like that one, too. Uh, and that image is actually from Tom Victor. He sent us an image of the set being made for the Beach Club. So that's where we got that picture from. And listen, I want to also let you know on Friday now, me and uh, Melanie Rose are going to be doing something really cool. We're going to be doing a 9.0 news. Uh, we're going to be dropping all kinds of 9.0 news. There was a lot of news this last couple of weeks going on uh, from Dean Kane throwing something down and uh, the Jessica Alba debacle. Christine, do you have a comment on that? Yes, I do. I wrote to Jason right away. I screen grabbed that. And I was like, Jason, is she fucking insane? Because there's no way. And I was, Paul Lager did say, hey, the girls might not be nice, the guys be nice. But like, that's as, as bad as it got. There's no, that cast is very nice. And if they don't like you, they just go away. That, that, that whole don't make eye contact, eye contact is, I'm going to call it what it is, is a fucking lie. <laughs> Yes, I mean, I was waiting for someone. We, we came to the conclusion that it's, it had to be just somebody saying it to her in passing, like a, a, a you know second AD or somebody mm -hmm. or in the makeup trailer, because it just didn't make any sense. You know, Tori, uh, you know, we always talk about Jay and I've never heard anybody. Tori was always 
she was Tori Spelling, and she was very aware that she was a Spelling, and she was very nice to people. I've never, I, I can't imagine Tori turning on that bullshit, you know. Yeah, I'm myself, but yeah. Yeah. I think Jessica Alba got high off of the wings that she was eating and just kind of lost her shit for a second. That's my that's my theory because the, those wings are very spicy. I understand. Yeah. Uh, what what why is she invested in shit talking a show from thirty years ago? Either like it's her, like she's doing great. Like she's a bazillionaire with her little honest company, right? Isn't that her? That is her. I think that's yeah, why she her is a rich woman. You're absolutely right. Very rich. She and evidently not so honest. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to this anyway sorry jessica all right uh, i think we covered this so that's going to be friday we're going to drop some 90210 a news show just because there's so much going on and with the new podcast that's coming out i'm sure we'll have lots to talk about there so uh thank you thank you, thank thank you, you Bye, Christine. Thank you. <laughs> you Bye, numbers after this. All right, <laughs> listen, this was a lot of fun, guys. We will be back next week. Larry and I are, have Paige Moss coming in, who was Tara. Yes. Kelly Stalker. So we're going to be covering that. I think that was a season six storyline. So I'm super excited for that. And then, of course, Kathleen Robertson is coming on November 11th. We've got a whole bunch of other stuff coming up before that. So stay tuned to our show, and we will be back again uh, next week. Thanks, guys, for watching. Bye, bye guys. Later. Bye. 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 Thanks, guys.